Gareth Hunt of the investment bank Stiefel is an expert in the professions, especially law firms. He's a mainframe of knowledge about their strengths and their weaknesses. And he was a key player in the team that floated legal partnership DWF back in 2019, raising £95 million. So, Gareth, the last time we spoke about the subject of the future of the professions and specifically that of the legal profession was nearly three years ago now. And you've been very busy in the interim on a number of projects. So tell us about what's happened in the intervening 36 months. This sector has absolutely remained incredibly active. Um, I think the volume of capital has continued to grow. There's been an increase in the range of investors that are seeking to deploy capital into legal services, whether that's in law firms directly or into litigation finance activity. And I think as a consequence of that increase in the volume of capital and the diversity of capital providers, we've seen an increase in innovation and also a decline in the cost of capital. As a trend, I think we are probably starting to see the emergence of a convergence trend in the sector. And one of our flagship deals this year has been a off-balance sheet portfolio for Mishkondorea. Um, so it's not a direct financing to a law firm's balance sheet, nor is it a financing of a litigation finance platform that provides capital to law firms. It's the first time that a law firm has raised an innovative finance structure that is bespoke to them. So we're starting to see the two subsectors within legal services come together. And as part of that process, we saw a number of counterparties, both from the traditional litigation finance sector, but also institutional investors, uh, seek to innovate in order to put their money to work. I think the, the other big trend in the sector has obviously been the impact of COVID. When economies first went into lockdown, there was a high degree of concern across the sector is exactly what that meant. Fast forwarding just six months, by the third quarter of 2020, people were starting to see that they were going to be significant improvement from COVID, both in terms of their cost base, there were lower travel and expenses, and then they were also starting to see uh, enhanced revenue as well. So the sector actually emerged from COVID in very strong shape indeed, uh, with the vast majority of firms reporting stronger numbers on the revenue and the cost line. As a consequence of that, we saw share prices outperform. And everybody knows that equity indices have been rising very sharply from the March 2020 low. Law firm and litigation finance share prices have been outperforming those sharply rising indexes. And as a consequence, that has only added fuel to the interest that we'd seen in the sector before the crisis hit. Now, I remember when we first spoke about this, you gave me that extraordinary 400-page document that you'd researched, which looked back at a decade of financials. And you said the industry is optically very, very attractive with an amazing revenue profile. If you take the largest 40 firms over a five-year period, only one hadn't grown despite the huge scale of the magic circle. And the margin of around 31, 32, 33% or so was just the same year in, year out. So would you have said that it's actually a brighter outlook for them now than it was three years ago? And if it is, why is it necessary for some of them to go to the public markets for capital? What's still holding them back with the partnership model? 
That's certainly what we're hearing. Um, that that report that we produce is based upon filings that the, the, the major law firms make publicly to companies' house. Um, and the accounts that relate to the period over COVID won't be available until the start of 2022. Um, but what we're anecdotally hearing is that when those numbers are publicly reported, they'll be very strong. And it's certainly the case that in the period um, uh, preceding COVID, um, numbers had remained very strong indeed. So the industry has continued to grow in its top line revenues and continued to generate very strong margins. That has been substantially improved during COVID given travel and expenses costs, which were not insignificant for the average law firm, have obviously fallen away. And that sector adapted incredibly well to home working. Obviously, the vast majority of their workforce are able to do their jobs at home, and they, they adapted to that. In terms of why companies would, given that, that the strength of their financial performance, why they would contemplate coming to capital, um, I think there are a number of reasons. And if anything, they've got slightly stronger. I think the first is that COVID has shown a number of law firms that it is well worthwhile investing in technology. If they are, the new normal is going to be three days in the office, two days at home, or some combination like that, then they will need stronger and more robust systems in order to live in that new reality. So I think there's definitely a need for primary capital to invest in businesses and particularly on the technology side. I think the, the second driver is, is lifestyle and generational change. And I think that question, which has been perennial in the sector now for a number of years, is to do all of our associates really want to become full equity partners with everything that that entails? Or does this younger cohort perhaps want a slightly different lifestyle? And th those sorts of questions, what, what, what world did we go back to after COVID, have only become more pertinent. And publicly listing absolutely facilitates that. And um, rather than it being a be-all or end-all, I've got to make equity partner. If you're publicly listed, you have access to share options and you can give some portion of value to people who perhaps want to remain as, as senior associates and don't want to go through to full equity partnership. So it gives a, a degree of flexibility that perhaps a number of their cohorts are thinking out loud about more than they were prior to the pandemic. But is it still perceived in what has traditionally been quite a conservative sector as something a bit sort of racy? I mean, Mishcons are an interesting example, aren't they? They're very high public profile associated with Diana, Princess of Wales, founded in Brixton, you know, not in the city of London, with an incredibly strong brand there and, and, and quite individualistic. Were you surprised that they've made the move they had? And clearly, although they voted by a substantial majority in favour of it, they've had some people who've dropped out, haven't they, since that vote and have left and gone elsewhere. We know that the thought process around moving towards public markets is a conversation that all firms have and not everybody agrees that's the, the appropriate direction. So it's not at all unusual to see changes in the partnership mix as companies head towards um, IPO. That's definitely been the case for other partnerships that have considered that too. As you correctly observe, um, Mishcons has been a, a very forward-thinking firm. It's grown incredibly rapidly over the past decade. And as we know from their incredibly high-profile court victories, they are constantly out there setting the trail. Um, they're a trailblazing law firm. Um, so it's not surprising to see them towards the front of this curve. And what's happening now in the USA? Because up until pretty recently, it wasn't an available option, was it, for a legal partnership? 
in the States to do what DWF and what Keystone and the others have done? The prohibitions on external ownership of law firms have been robust in the US for a very long time. There's been debate over a number of years as to whether they would change. Arizona has now changed and has adopted an ABS regime that is extremely similar to the UK. That has increased the noise and the pressure on other state bar councils to consider similar changes. And we hear that discussions are underway on a state-by-state basis, and there is speculation as to, to which states are more philosophically predisposed to moving towards an ABS regime. Arizona is obviously important. Clearly, if California or New York or Florida or Texas were to go, that would be huge, given the size of those legal markets. And there are varying degrees of speculation as to which of those states might be contemplating a move. But as we know, everything in the legal sector moves relatively slowly. So I think we're definitely talking about those states liberalizing over a period of years rather than months. Also, I don't think we should be surprised if firms that are based outside of Arizona in the US maybe consider whether they're able to use those ABS structures in Arizona in order to access outside capital. What arguments are being put forward by the antis in the States then, those who are resisting that move? The arguments for ABS structures and for outside ownership tend to focus firstly on access to justice and having access to outside capital that is prepared to take risks increases the ability of private individuals who would not ordinarily be able to fund their own legal action again, particularly against large corporates, that outside capital is more prone to take risk, and that increases access to justice for those individuals. And that would certainly be the Stiefel House view. Secondarily, bar councils, as they entertain this, are also persuaded of the argument that if there are financially expert external shareholders in a business, that business is more likely to be run efficiently. And as a consequence, it should increase the aggregate efficiency of the legal sector, which should ultimately feed through to costs um, for end clients as well. And those are the two well-established arguments in favour of liberalisation. The argument against has been and remains the independence of lawyers. And people take that argument extremely seriously, as they absolutely should. And I know there's considerable debate around that, and there are differing opinions. What's been interesting looking at regulators outside of the US, they have contemplated whether it is possible to put in place governance structures that protect the independence of lawyers while allowing the cash to move to where it needs to move to. So there are a number of approaches that are contemplated as people consider how they might protect the independence of lawyers. When we discussed this before, there seemed to be general agreement that the big magic circle firms were some way away from feeling that they needed to do something like this. It was the middle band, the DWFs of this world, who were going to go for it. Do you think that remains true now, or is the level of interest sort of rising among them? I, I think that absolutely remains the case. I think the speculation rem- remains that it'll be the, the mid-sized firms on both sides of the, the Atlantic that are more likely to approach outside capital, and that's certainly our experience as we think about the conversations that we're having with companies privately about whether they might access outside capital. The simplest answer, of course, is that the largest firms have the most partners to convince. In a mid-sized firm, you've got to convince 100 people it's the right thing to do. 
in a major magic circle or white shoe firm, you've got to convince thousands. So um, lawyers have strong opinions about things. That's why they're lawyers. So I, I think there's a degree of that. Um, I think it's also down to complexity as well. The larger the firm, the more territories you operate in, the more regulators you need to speak to. And typically speaking, there, there's a degree of correlation between the size of a firm and the average revenue per partner. And that might also shift the relative economic attractiveness of them um, coming for outside capital as well. It was once explained to us is that it would be like a, a, a game of negative dominoes that firms would go when a firm slightly smaller than them had just accessed capital and achieved a multiple that was attractive. And that you would always reference a firm that was just a little bit smaller in revenue than you. So we didn't expect it to jump all the way up the size scale. We expected it to grow gradually over time. I think the wild card in the pack will be US deregulation in the event that there is rapid deregulation in the States, that is much more likely to see larger firms go quicker. And I think that could be the game-changing event. But to be clear, right here, right now, there's no visibility of that happening imminently. Finally, you worked for some time on the DWF deal. What were the most challenging aspects of that? You got it away successfully in the end. But I remember when we spoke about it, you had to go into very great detail because you were treading new ground. It was something as an organisation filled with lawyers they weren't familiar with. What did you as a, as a banker find the most challenging aspects of it? Capital markets partly value companies intrinsically based upon the forecast of future cash flows, and they partly value them on comparison. What is this like and how is that company valued? And for a law firm of DWF scale, um, there was nothing that was comparable. It was significantly larger. It was the first company to attempt a UK main list, and it was the first international firm to list. So there was nothing like it on international markets. So it was very clear how that business had performed over a number of years. What was less clear is how do we compare this to other stocks that are listed because there was nothing like that. So I think that was challenge number one, is to help the market develop a conceptual framework for that business. I think the second challenge related to the international footprint and getting UKLA and subsequently UK public market investors comfortable that they had control of the territories like France and Germany, where governance layers were put in place to defend the independence of lawyers, but the headquarters in London was able to take the cash flows or its share of the cash flows at the end of the year. So getting people comfortable with the organizational structure that was compliant on a regional basis was also, wasn't challenging, it um, just required a lot of work. And what about Brexit? How's that changed everything? It's really difficult to disaggregate one effect from another. I would say the biggest single impact on the sector that we're aware of over the last 24 months has been COVID. COVID has structurally changed their working practices. I don't think there's any question about that. And that has very clear consequence for their cost bases, but also um, for how they manage their staff and the lifestyle they offer their staff. We probably hear people talk about COVID effects at least 10 times or 15 times more frequently than they mentioned Brexit. 